Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermon Podcast. Be sure to keep watching immediately after the sermon for Postscript, a weekly podcast with in-depth content and answers to your questions submitted during the sermon. You can also find it on iTunes or at faithbridge.org slash postscript. Perfection. It's everywhere you look. Perfect people. Pretending. Perfect families. Perfect vacations. The perfect life. But it's not real. We're hiding from the truth. We're broken and we are afraid. But God isn't calling us to this kind of empty perfection. He wants something better. He wants to start with you right where you are, faults and all. He's not afraid of your stains and your scars. He wants the real you to live a real abundant life. He wants to take your imperfections and use you to accomplish his perfect plans. In story after story, this is how God redeems the world. Not with perfect people, but with the broken. People who think their imperfections make them unusable by God. But they're wrong. His power is stronger than our hang-ups. His love is bigger than our messes. His grace is greater than our sins. Join us. Let's pursue God in a way that turns your brokenness into beauty and brings genuine meaning to your life. He wants to use you to change the world one life at a time. Forget what the world says. Don't chase their version of perfection. Let him make you better than your imperfections, better than the sum of all your successes and failures. Let's be better than perfect. That's where we're going. Welcome to Back to School Sunday. So glad that you're here. Whichever room that you're in today, wherever it is that you are in your faith journey. So we're going to go with this new series, Better Than Perfect, to 1 Samuel. So why don't you take your Bibles and turn in the Old Testament. That's the first part of the Bible. Uh, the first half, you could say, First Samuel, don't be afraid to use the table of contents. And if you didn't bring a Bible and you'd like to try and follow along, why don't you just flag down an usher right now in all our rooms? They'll have uh, Bibles. You just raise your hand at them, and uh, they'll be glad to let you borrow one. You can even keep it if you need a Bible. So when I was a kiddo growing up, uh, and really all the way through, my family uh, always vacationed in the mountains of Colorado. Unbeknownst to me and unbeknownst to her, uh, because we didn't know each other, Suzanne and her family were doing the very same thing, summer vacations in the mountains of Colorado. So when we met and eventually married, it wasn't hard for us to figure out where we're going to spend our summer vacation time in the mountains of Colorado. So as a matter of fact, that's where we've been um, and enjoying those uh, uh, beautiful mountains, and now we're back in this hot, humid world. So anyhow, 
I was walking by the, uh, the restroom, the bathroom, uh, one morning while we were up there, and I backed up to catch one of my sons uh, working in the mirror with his quaff. And I was looking at him through the mirror and, until he saw me, and then I chuckled and I said, you know, son, the funny thing about that is I used to stand at the same sink looking in the same mirror working on my quaff. Well, he did the same thing that you just did. He started laughing. He said, Dad, you have no quaff. You, you're bald. And I said, yeah, but you failed to know. I wasn't always. In fact, to prove it, I dug up a photo. I said, you want to see what I looked like when I was your age? I look remarkably similar to you. As a matter of fact, I said, you want to see me in high school so you can get a glimpse of your future? Here's what you'll probably look like in high school. Yeah, it's been a hard few decades on me. And so, <clears throat> so, you know, he was laughing along until it finally dawned on him. If that could happen to you, then it could happen. Yeah, that's exactly right, son. So pride comes before the fall. And so that led to a, a really good conversation that the two of us had about the externals and the internals, the outside of our bodies and the insides of our hearts, and what really matters the most. <clears throat> we talked some about, about things uh, that moment uh, and about what really matters. Now, I bet I don't have to convince you it's the insides that matter the most. But even though you know that, I bet you've also noticed your Facebook feed where people everywhere are propping their lives up, pretending, promoting themselves, and it's usually as rather perfect, right? And then we do the insidious thing, we start to compare our lives with their lives and we start to compare their perfect lives with our perfect, I should say their pretend perfect with our pretend perfect. And then we start feeling insecure and all these sorts of things and, and, and so we prop it up even further, making matters worse. Because the more we prop it up on the outside, the more we're having to pretend on the inside, and our souls were never made for pretending. And this is why experts say chronic self-esteem, anxiety issues, depression, desperation are running at all-time highs because it's exhausting to pretend. And we do this, don't we? Now, I know some of you are right now about uh, now thinking, well, okay, so he's going to take dead aim at social media. It's all the fault of social media. No, it's not the fault of social media. Before there was ever social media, people were trying to keep up with the Joneses, right? Just using whatever means they had to talk about it back then. Do I have the right home? Am I in the right neighborhood? Do I have the right clothes? Are they trendy enough? Are they not too trendy, but just about the right amount? What about my car? Is it okay? Is it cool enough? But not too cool. Is it okay? What about my gadgets? What about my phones? Do I have a dorky phone or do I have an up-to-date kind of iPhone? Social media, it just exacerbates the reality that people have always been this mixed bag swinging between the poles or the extremes of 
authentic living and rotten phoniness. And the Bible is proof, proof positive of this, that people have always swung between these two extremes. Going back to the very beginning, you can find character after character after character who wrestled with this. But my boys and I, we got thinking about one of these characters in particular. Because when we're in the mountains, we're on mountain time, of course, and that makes you wake up about an hour earlier. And so while mom's getting a a little extra sleep, the three of us get up and we got some breakfast together. And I began to to seize the moments of those uh, mornings that we had and began to take them on a devotional journey through the life of King David. And I was intrigued by their intrigue each morning. So what happened next? And then what happened? And even as they were asking those sorts of questions, it sparked in me this renewed fascination and fondness for this character, David, at which point I contacted the people back here and said, I think God's telling me what we need to talk about this fall. I want to do a study on the life of this fascinating man, King David, who's still commemorated even today in Israel on their nation's flag. Anytime you see that six-point iconic star, it's called what? The Star of David. Even though it's been 3,000 years they still consider him the greatest king Israel ever had. Oh, he had some high moments, but he had some low moments as well. And so we see in David this remarkable character who's very inspiring, but altogether relatable, entirely relatable to us as well. And I think what what we're going to find is that even as he learned again and again the truth that close fellowship with God is better than any perfect that we can contrive on our own. I think we're going to learn the very same thing. And so that's where we're going. Now, before I read to you from 1 Samuel 16, let me give you a little background just so you can have kind of a running start when we come into this, especially if you're kind of new uh, to this. So the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, his special people, they were known for centuries not to have a king other than God. They were called a theocracy, meaning that you couldn't see their king because God was their king. He had said, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. But they were prone to the same sorts of things that we're prone to. They were looking at all the other nations and saying, but we want to have a king like they have a king and that nation and they all have kings. Why can't we have a king like that? And God was saying, because you have me. What more could you want than me? But they said, but we want a king that you can see with skin on him. And so finally God said, all right, I'll give you a king. So he gave them a king. His name was Saul. He was their first king. He was big, tall, handsome, stood head and shoulders above all the rest. People looked at him and said, that is a king right there. And it started out all right. But over time, things spiraled downward precipitously. He became increasingly selfish and hateful and corrupt and evil. And finally, God broke in and said, we're going to have to make a change in leadership. And he told this to his prophet Samuel. A prophet's job was to speak for God. And so he told Samuel, we're going to make a change here in leadership, which was a hard corner for Samuel to come around because he'd been rooting for, for Saul. This is where we come into the story in 1 Samuel 
chapter 16. Let me read to you. Verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? So now, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be the king. Verse 6, jump down to 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, that's Jesse's firstborn son, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab, that's the second son, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah, the third oldest, pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen any of these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? Jesse answered, well, they're still the youngest. He's just tending the sheep. Samuel said, sin for him. We'll not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in, and he was glowing with health and had fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him, Samuel. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And that from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Now, in this passage, there are at least three things that I want us to see. And so if you're a note taker, there's going to be three things I'm going to uh, uh, tell you so you can jot them down. The first is I want you to notice in this passage, what was God's focus? We have to capture this. What was God's focus? Go back. Seven sons all paraded before Samuel, one after the next by a proud father, Jesse. And yet God kept telling Samuel, nope, nope. Nope, not that one, not that one. Not. Finally, they get down. Seven's the perfect number. I mean, it's got to be one of these, right, God? God says, no, it's not. So he says, Jesse, have you got no more sons? And he says, well, actually, there's one more. He's just a kid, though. He's out in the back. He's somewhere down in the fields taking care of the sheep. Surely that's not the one you're... Technically... The word that he uses when he describes his son, David, is the word runt, just the runt, which is a combination of two uh, things, small plus insignificant. Now, this isn't a sermon on parenting, but it could easily have become that, couldn't it? At which point we might say, probably best never to call your kiddo a runt, right? Um, because you never know what God might be wanting to do. Samuel says, go and get that son. So they send for him, send some servants out, you know, and they, you picture him coming in and hopping off the back of the John Deere tractor. And he's like, what? What's going on here? And he hardly walks through the door before God says to Samuel, that's the guy. He takes his big horn of oil and pours it over his head. You picture David standing there saying like, what is going on? You know, is this, and <clears throat> Josephus, the, the historian, the Jewish historian, uh, who was not biblical, but extra biblical, he says, at that point, um, Jesse had to lean over and say to his son, David, what this means is that you're going to be the next king. That's what's happening right now. Why? 
Why, why him? The one who smelled like sheep and hay back there. The unimpressive one. Why him? Ah, because of God's focus. Did you see that in verse 8? It says, people look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. I said that's verse 8, but I think it's verse 7. But God looks at the heart. Do you know um, what spiritual, uh, or rather what misdirection is? Misdirection is when you, uh, well, it's what is used by stage magicians and pickpockets. It's get them looking one way while you do this over here. So I remember uh, when I went to Europe some years ago, and I remember the people who were leading us said, now when we go into this village or into this little town square or whatever, there's going to be little children, little urchins that are going to come up, and they're, they're going to try to pick your pocket. And so you keep your hands on your fanny pack uh, because they, they, they will come up and they'll, they'll distract you. Do you want this? you want to buy one of these? You need one of these? <laughs> newspaper, newspaper, you need the news. And, and partly because you think they're cute, but partly because to get rid of them, you'll say, you know what? I will. Let me get my money. Wait a second. Where's my money? Wait a second. Where's the kids that were just here? Ah, spiritual misdirection. I mean, misdirection strikes again. Now, Tim Keller points out spiritual misdirection is possible for all of us to fall prey to. Spiritual direction, misdirection, what is that? Ah, that's when we get looking at something that God says, that's not what you ought to be looking at. We're looking at the externals instead of the heart, which is what it says he is interested in. We're all guilty of this, aren't we? Uh, I bet if you are of a dating age, you probably have sort of your list of here's what she needs to be like, here's what he needs to be like. I bet pretty high on the list. She better be pretty. He better be pretty handsome, right? Or what about this? You hire, maybe you're an employer and you hire people. It's tempting, isn't it? To, to look at somebody and say, you know what, he's a sharp-looking guy. He's bound to be good. He'll be good at sales. He'll be good at this. He's, um, only to discover, man, he's lazy, it's compromising character and integrity. You fall for that a couple of times, and you, you learn the hard way. Don't fall for spiritual misdirection. Or... I think of even if you're going back to school, maybe tomorrow or this week, or maybe you went back last week and you're a child, I'll ask you. So when you walk into the lunchroom, when you walk in the cafeteria, who do you try to, you, instinctively you, you try to, well, she's kind of pretty and he's kind of popular, so I, I, maybe I can sit at their table and see if you can kind of find your way there. Why do we do that? Because somehow we think that's going to make me be a better person and feel better about myself and all if I could sit at that table. Unlike my friend Janet, I remember when I was growing up, I learned something from Janet, and she was a very pretty gal, and she was very popular. She was every year at the front of the yearbooks, she would be in the popular and the beautiful, but she was different than all the other beautiful, popular people, in that whenever we would go into the cafeteria, I remember she would go straight, not to that table or those tables, she would go to that sort of the peripheral person to the reject, and she'd sit down by one or two of them, and she'd open up lunch and open up their souls while they were eating. 
And I remember watching with intrigue as, as they'd be laughing after a while and talking and engaged in meaningful conversation. And I remember thinking, she, I think she understands something the rest of us don't understand. We fall for this spiritual misdirection, don't we? And guys, I see it uh, especially the, the quintessential exterior focus. What is that? Pornography. There's nothing that looks at the outsides more than that which becomes real problematic when you start thinking, I want to get married now. Because if you keep going back to pornography, your brain's patterns have been taught a way of thinking that you can't really uh, consider looking at anybody else who doesn't fit a certain profile. And ladies, I, I worry about you as well, some of you, because you're falling prey to this temptation to look perfect and be desirable, and, and you're consumed with taking all the necessary steps to be beautiful and all of these sorts of things, rather than cultivating your soul, cultivating your heart on the inside. Girls, don't do that. One of the things that drew me so much to Suzanne when we were introduced was, in addition to the fact that she is very pretty and has a wonderful smile, and, and a contagious wit that makes me laugh all the time was that her soul was so well-developed. She would write these long prayers out in her journal. Sometimes she'd let me read these prayers, and, and not just like one journal. She had like a lot of them that she'd gone through over the years in Bible study and, and notes from sermons and, and things that she'd been learning from the Lord. And I remember realizing, wow, she's not just an apple that's good looking on the outside, she's got a, a core that's healthy and robust and well-formed. And that's what God is saying. That's the important thing. You say, well, I want to I be like that. I, I want to have a core. I don't want to be a rotten, mushy apple inside the pretty red veneer. I, I want to be authentic, and I want to be real, and I want to be well-formed on the inside. So how do I do it? Well, it will require probably you getting on a different pathway. This is the second thing. We talked about God's focus, the heart. Now let's talk about God's pathway. God's pathway to inner character is typically long and paved with obscure, menial tasks. You can mark that down. You say, well, in that case, I'm already on the pathway. Well, Maybe you are on the pathway. So it may not be that you need a different path. It may just be that you need a different mindset while you're traveling the path that you're on. Think about this. Although David was anointed to be the king that day, he did not take the crown the next day. No, no. We fail to realize that a lot of years passed before he would actually become the king after this day of his anointing. So what did he do while he was waiting? Go to the print shop and say, hey, I need some business cards. And then he'd say, David, king elect. No, he didn't do that. <laughs> did he go to Neiman's and say, I need a crown. Let's go ahead and take the measurements because it's, no, he didn't do that. What's the Bible says that he did? He just went back out into the fields where nobody saw him and he kept watching over the flocks of sheep that God had put under his charge. And we'll learn next week um, when we come back to this, that in one instance, he had to fight off a bear 
and kill the bear to protect the sheep. Another time he had to fight off a lion and kill the lion to protect the sheep. I don't know about you, but it might've been a little tempting if a lion was coming up to say, you know what? I made a big decision, lion. You can have one sheep if you'll just keep me intact, right? And then you could be tempted to go in and tell the owner, you know, bad news, a lion came, but he only got one, only got one. I mean, we came out pretty good. Otherwise everything's okay other than that one sheep. Nobody would know. But David didn't do that. He laid down his life, potentially, for the sake of those sheep. <clears throat> Nor do we have any indication that when he was fighting off lions and fighting off bears that he was thinking to himself, who needs this? Why the heck am I doing this with a bunch of dumb sheep? I'm the king after all. I mean, they don't know it yet, but God knows it and but he didn't do that. He just served faithfully where God had placed him in that season. You know what God uses to etch character into us? Typically, a lot of time and a lot of menial, obscure tasks. Um, if I could talk to my teenaged self when I was 16, 17, and 18 and looked like that second picture um, a few minutes ago. I've been pondering what I would tell myself, particularly about my job that I had, my after-school job or my summer job in my summer job. If I could talk to my that then self, I think I'd go back and I'd say, you need to understand something. You need to understand this isn't just an after-school job or a summer job. This is actually character training because God is working on you already, putting you in circumstances that are going to position you someday to become a pastor, which had never crossed my mind in high school. You say, well, how's that? Well, because when I was 16, 17, 18, I was smelling people's feet. You say, what? Well, that's not why they paid me. They paid me because I was working in a shoe store. But when you worked in a shoe store, at least this shoe store, you smelled people's feet. We put tennis shoes and running shoes on people. And it wasn't like some shoe stores today that they go in the back and they hand you all the boxes. Hey, go sit down over there. Good luck. Let me know if you want anything else. I'll go back in the back and get it. No, no, no. We sat down on one of those little stools and we looked at them and we took off their shoes. Sometimes their feet were big and the socks were wet with sweat and it just made you need Purell right there, but you couldn't do that because they didn't even think had that back then. And, and, <clears throat> and you had to smile and make conversation and put the new shoes on. And this was really special. Sometimes like about five o'clock till 9 p.m. when I had a test the next day at school, a family of six walked through the door they decided we all need new shoes. Doesn't matter that you've been here since 10 a.m. Now it's convenient for us. What do you do in that instance? You do what the boss tells you. You take a deep breath and you serve them because the customer is right. And your job is to serve their needs. And so you realize it's not about you. You sacrifice, you care for their needs, and that's not quite right. How about let's try this one until finally, maybe 9.45, you get that whole family marching out, feeling good about the shoes that they got for the whole new family. If I could talk to myself back then, I would say, you, you don't see this, 
But the day is going to come when you're going to be caring for a lot of people, more than six. And they're going to be inconvenient sometimes, and they're going to be smelly sometimes, and frustrating sometimes. But God is working on you. He's working in you. He's building character that you're going to need. You're learning how to serve, to sacrifice, how to make it not about you. God prefers time and obscurity and menial tasks, it seems like. Well, think about Moses, the prince of Egypt. Here he had grown up in the palace of Egypt, but due to the you know, killing of a man, he flees for his life and he finds himself on the backside of a desert in Midian for 40 years, thinking my best days are behind me. I am all washed up. No, he wasn't. God was just building character inside of him to the point that after 40 years, he would say, now, Moses, now you're finally ready to be my man and to go back to Egypt and to tell the Pharaoh, let my people go. 40 years, God put him in obscurity. We don't think about it because the Apostle Paul, he had that famous Damascus Road experience where he saw uh, Christ and heard Christ and who, you know, and, and he has this conversion moment. And next thing we know, he's writing letters to the Romans and to the Ephesians and to the Corinthians and the Colossians and all these cities around the Mediterranean. But we fail to, 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 to put the timeline together and realize, wait a second, he went through about 10 years of obscurity. God saved him on that road and he would use him, but not for 10 years. He was going to work him over and really develop his soul. This is just the pathway that God chooses so consistently. Think about the Psalms. Half of the Psalms King David wrote. I'm thinking of Psalm 8, 3, and 4 that says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? How could he write about the moon and the stars and God and all? Because he had sat on the backside of a pasture many a night, staring at God's stars and moon and nature, keeping watch over his flock, while God was working on his soul, chiseling him into the person who would eventually be fit to be the shepherd and the king of the nation of Israel. It's a different pathway than we want. Now, here's what's uh, confusing to us. In this day and age, our society has engineered a quicker pathway to the top, particularly for four categories of people. The athletes the actors, the musicians, and the models. You see, what has happened in our culture is that a new path has been engineered for people who have the beauties of model, the exterior beauty of models, or the innate talent of athleticism, or music, or acting. These people go right to the top very quickly, and we're enamored by that. We're like, that's the life that I meant to sign up for. What we fail to see is that inside their pretty looks or their talented, uh, able bodies, 
is an unformed soul. Their character so consistently is unshaped, is unfashioned, is unformed. And so, predictably, these childhood stars in young adulthood, they were headed for such great things, it seems, and all of a sudden, they plunge headlong into destruction. They sail their beautiful ships right into the rocks of destruction. And the whole world gawks and says, Golly, how did that, can you believe that happened? The answer should be yes. If there's a shock, it's not that it happened. The answer is, is, the question is, how did it not happen any sooner than it did? Because they had unformed character inside their gifted bodies. See, your looks, your talent, it might get you to the top fast. It might get you the job, but it's your character that enables you to keep the job for the long haul. You say, well, that's fine and well, but Ken, I don't walk on red carpets and I don't think the day is soon coming that I'm going to walk on red carpets. This would be a good sermon for those people, but not for me. Well, let me just ask you this. Maybe that's true, but let's come back to your Facebook feed. Sort of seems like there's a lot of people these days who are wishing that their lives were as successful and apparently perfect as some of those people that I was just talking about. So look, I don't know uh, where you are and what you're going through, and I certainly don't know, uh, I do know, some of you are in pain and some of you are suffering, and you're like, I'm on this path and it is painful and it is tedious and it is hard and there's suffering in it, and I wouldn't presume to tell you why that is your lot, why that is your path. I'm not standing here saying, and here's the reason why, but I do know this, that whatever our lot, whatever the path is that God has put us on, the only way to become a person after God's own heart is to surrender, to humble ourselves and, and just become real and authentic and to submit yourself to God's training program and it usually takes a lot of years and a lot of menial tasks. But what if, what if you, what if I, what if all of us, especially as we start this new school year season, what if tomorrow, instead of being bitter about you know, where we are in life and who's done us wrong and why we feel like we're the king and nobody knows we're the king, and what if instead of complaining about the smelly sheep that we're having to tend or the smelly diapers that we're having to change, or the smelly homework that we're having to do. What if instead of all of that, we were to change our mindset and just to say, I know that God, you are good. I know that you're in charge. I know that though sometimes it feels like you, you've lost touch of where I am and you've forgotten about me. I know that that's not really true. And so, Lord, I just, I'm surrendering my life here and now, today, yet for another day. Won't you give me grace to walk this path victoriously? Like a famous preacher that I just was reading about earlier today, uh, W.E. Sangster was his name. And apparently in his 58th of 60 years, his body began to fail terribly with muscular problems, and, and finally, um, 
it got so bad, he, he wrote on an Easter Sunday, it is so hard to have an Easter and not have voice anymore to proclaim Christ is risen. But he also wrote how much worse it would be to have a voice but not know the message that Christ is risen. He was just surrendered to where God had him and he was working with what he had. What if you and I did the same and just surrendered our lives to him and just said, you're, you're in control, God. And let him work on us the way that Michelangelo had to work on that block of marble that eventually became the famous statue called David. So that brings up a, a third and final thing for us to talk about. How will we ever do this? You say, well, I, I, I see that God's focus is the heart. It's not the externals. And I know that, and this is a good reminder of that, and, and I want my focus uh, to be right. And, I, and I, want my path, I want to be on the right path. I want to be going after a heart like David's, a heart after God. I want to be cultivating that. I want to cooperate with the Spirit of the Lord, not fight the pathway that I'm on, but be surrendered to it. But the problem is, Ken, it's easy to say, okay, I'll do all of that while you're standing here telling me about it. But the problem is tomorrow I go back to work. I go back to school. I'll be in traffic. And Tuesday and Wednesday, this will start to feel kind of like a vague memory because you're not there reminding me about what do you got for me see the problem isn't that you don't know what you ought to do you know what you ought to do the problem is you don't have the power and that leads to the third thing we've talked about God's focus we talk about his pathway you have to talk about his power that's the last thing that I want to talk about did you notice what happened in verse 13? When Samuel got up and he anointed David's head with the oil, and the oil comes flowing down over his body, did you see what else it said on the back half of 13? It says, and from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Here's what we're going to see in the coming weeks as we look at his life. We're going to see that every time David was um, surrendered to the spirit of the Lord, dependent upon the spirit of the Lord, good things were happening. To the contrary, whenever he was relying upon his own abilities, on his own uh, wisdom, that's where he blew it. Consistently, and the same holds true for you and for me. You say, okay, well, good, but how do I get the power that he had and continue to live and walk in that power of his Holy Spirit. The only way to do it is by coming into a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, what I want you to notice is something I bet that you didn't see. After Jesse had marched all seven of those sons and they went for the eighth out in the pasture and they're all thinking, eight? There's nothing good that comes out of eight. Seven is the divine number. Whatever comes out of that field right now, that's not going to be significant. Certainly, it's not going to be the king of Israel. That's what they were thinking, right? But what I want you to notice is where this whole scene happened. Did you see that? Let's go back and look at verse one. The whole setting, I'm sending you, Samuel, to Jesse of Bethlehem. 
Now that's significant. It's significant because God was signaling something to people then and even now as we come into the story. He was sending us a signal that David is not the last shepherd and king that's going to come out of Bethlehem. As a matter of fact, there's going to be one even better than David who will be the shepherd of our souls and the king of all kings. He was the one to whom even David was looking with anticipation. Why did he come? He came because he had seen quite clearly that we, all of us, have gone astray like misguided sheep. All of us are like apples, look fine on the outside, but we're rotten on the core. Why? Because we have sin and pride and lust and greed and evil and all of these sorts of things on our insides that have corroded us. He knew that the problem isn't that we know what, how we should act or what we should do. The problem is that we, we don't have the power to do it day after day after day. And the reality is he came because God said, I can't abide sin and evil and pride and lust and greed. I can't have that, not in my kingdom. I have to kill that, which is very bad news for you and me. Because you and I, we are inextricably linked to our pride and our sin and our greed and our lust and evil. And so if he's going to kill that, he's going to kill us in the meanwhile. Or maybe we could find a substitute, a fitting substitute who would say, no, you don't have to die in your sins. I'm going to come and live the life of perfection that you can't live. You pretend like it's perfect, but I'm the only one who ever did it. And I can die on that cross for your sins as a substitute. You can, you can put sort of like a sponge, I'll absorb your sins off of you onto me and I'll take the hit for your sins. And then on the third day, I'm going to rise victoriously, conquering the grave and signifying to everyone who puts their trust and their faith in me, you too can have life, not just everlasting life someday when you die, but abundant life now, filled with his power, flowing with his Holy Spirit that's sustaining us and giving us our sense of guidance and purpose and direction in our lives. Some of you, you're here today in this room or in Center Court East or at the Woodlands or online. You're hearing my voice right now and you say, you know, I don't know that I've ever really surrendered my life to Jesus. Oh, I mean, I know who he is and, and I even wear a cross around my neck that commemorates his life, but I haven't really ever given my life over to him. Today's going to be your day. And in just a minute, we're going to pray and I'm going to give you an opportunity just to step across that line of faith and saying, I want Jesus. I want the same Holy Spirit that came upon David 3,000 years, that same Holy Spirit to come upon me and transform me from the inside out. I need to be rescued. Others of you, maybe more of you in this category, you say, well, yeah, but I've already done that. Can I, I did that on a retreat one time or a young life or I went to a revival meeting or even in one of these rooms here at Faithbridge. I, I've invited Jesus, but I'm still the rotten apple on the inside. 
well, I need like a 2.0. What's the next thing after I've done that? No, you don't need, there's not a 2.0 that you need. You need to go back to 1.0 because you've lost sight of that. You've lost your focus on Jesus. You've forgotten who he is and what he came to do. So you got to re-gospel yourself and remember, this is why he came, to save you. Let that begin to melt your heart again, transform you, and then fill you up with his power, flowing with his Holy Spirit, giving you guidance in your life so that you can live the life that he created you to live in the first place. Because the reality is, our sin-fallen lives, they're never going to be perfect, no matter how much we try to position them as looking perfect from the outside. But our heart full of Jesus, that is better than perfect. Why don't we talk to him right now? Lord, thank you for the stories of David a person who was very real, just as real as every one of us, who had some real highs as we'll see and some real lows as we'll also see in this series. But you worked in him and through him and on him and you'll do the same with us if we would just allow you. My prayer, Lord, is for those who are hearing my voice right now and praying along quietly who've never really stepped across that line of faith, that today would be their day, right now in this moment, that they would say, I need a savior. I want Jesus. I'm stepping across this line. I'm inviting you, Jesus, to come into my heart, to bring the power of your Holy Spirit upon me, to transform me, to forgive me, to cleanse me of all unrighteousness, and to make me ready for living the life that you created me to live. And for others of us, who fall into that second category. It's not that we need you, Jesus, for the first time. It's just that we've lost our sight. We need to be re-gospeled. We need to come back into the full-on awareness of how wonderful that you are, that you would come, that you would die, that you would rise, that we would open up our souls and let you fill us full of your Holy Spirit so that we might be guided by you and carried along, swept along with the winds of your Holy Spirit. My prayer right now, Lord, is that hundreds of us, even in this moment, would be saying, even right now, that's what I want, Lord. I need you. I want you. I'm asking for your touch right now. And friends, even as we're praying, I, I want to just, um, I want us to, to do one more thing. Rather than just jumping up here and clapping and running on out into the day and into the new week and the new school year and all of this, I, I'd like us to just linger just a minute more. And just maintaining a spirit of reflection and worship focused on Jesus, I want us to, to worship, just to sing out one more song. In all of our rooms, I'll ask the musicians if, if you would uh, come and be ready in all of our rooms right now so that we might just, light of what we've talked about, sing out our praises now from our hearts that we might have hearts after God like David did. Let's stand in all of our rooms right now. Let's worship right now. Welcome to Postscript. 
Here we hope to answer your questions and help you dig deeper into the messages and sermons at FaithBridge by talking with the teacher of the day. Welcome to Postscript. I'm Luann Riley, Grow Group and Discipleship Director here at FaithBridge, and I'm here with Pastor Ken, who just brought part one of our series, Better Than Perfect. Welcome, Pastor Ken. Mm -hmm. All right, so we're looking at the life of David, mm -hmm. and uh, we started today as a shepherd out in the field working, and uh, we see where Samuel comes, and we you talked a lot about how God is not looking at this perfect outside that we're trying to create, but He's looking at our hearts. Mm -hmm. uh, we had some questions that mm -hmm. came in around some of the things you talked about, so I'm just going to jump into those. Sure. All right, so our series is better than perfect, mm -hmm. and it means that uh, we're looking at the heart, yeah. not the outside. Yeah. Uh, but why does First Samuel then describe David's physical appearance and attractiveness? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, well, if you look throughout the Old Testament, you often will get um, examples, I think, of Esther, who uh, were, is described as beautiful in face and form. Mm -hmm. And so we learn that the people then were just as externally focused as the people mm -hmm. now. But that's where the contrast is so significant, because the author uh, is telling us, but that is not what God is prioritizing. Mm -hmm. He's looking at the heart. And that's the challenge for us to change our focus as well. Good. Mm -hmm. um, so we talked about the spirit of the Lord, the power. Mm. That's where David gets his power mm -hmm. from. Uh, so when the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, what, what does that mean? Is it different from the working of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, no, I mean, the Holy Spirit's the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. In the Old Testament, what we see is not the coming of the Spirit that we have in the New Testament after Pentecost, where He comes upon <clears throat> everyone who trusts in Christ. Um, in the Old Testament, you get glimpses of Him, and David is certainly one of these glimpses. Mm -hmm. It's as if God was reserving his spirit to be poured out on individual people. And so uh, you have these characters throughout the Old Testament who, who they do get what it seems like everybody else d did not get. Mm -hmm. Well, that's true until the resurrection, until Pentecost. And then in accordance with those words from Joel, now God says, I'm going to send out my spirit upon all the people. Okay. Um, so, what well, I mean, what did it look like to the eyes? I don't, we can't really know that. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, what we can know is that something was clearly happening in his mm -hmm. heart that God had anointed him literally, physically, but spiritually with his spirit. Good. Okay, so another question. Um, that uh, I think is good when we look at Old Testament, New Testament, mm -hmm. some of these questions coming coming out. If it's only possible to have a heart for God because of and through Jesus, mm -hmm. how did David have a heart for God if he lived before Jesus? Sure. Or Moses or Abraham or Joseph mm -hmm. or Jacob or any of these people. <clears throat> and um, 
what we have to talk about here is the era of time that God's people were living in. They still had their sights set on a savior. They were looking to him. They just didn't know exactly who he was yet. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so they were going for him as far and as fast and as much as they could, mm -hmm. um, knowing he's going to send us a savior. And you, get, you pick up that language throughout the Old Testament, that the savior is coming, the Messiah is coming, and he will be um, an Isaiah. Um, he'll be the wonderful counselor, the almighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So they're like, we know he's coming. Mm -hmm. And we're putting our hearts on him. And then, of course, you move into the New Testament, and there he is born into the manger. And so we have the benefit of knowing what he looked like and how he came into the world in this very unlikely way in Bethlehem. Unexpected family, poor, stable, just like David, just the lowly shepherd out in the back, mm -hmm. also in Bethlehem. It's good. So uh, we learned uh, today about David's heart and uh, how we can, in our own hearts, be a person after God and have a heart for God. Uh, tell us what else is coming. Maybe give us a little preview to sure. the series. Well, of course, the, the life of David is an exciting life because, and it's so relatable, because he's going to have these high moments. We'll get to one of those next week, uh, perhaps the, one of the best known stories in the Bible. Um, and but then he's going to have these t terrible lows where his heart is taken off of the things of God mm -hmm. and he's distracted by women and, you know, things like, and we see the consequences of that. He had his challenges as a child, obviously, uh, there was some favoritism against him from Jesse. And then he's going to have some, some challenges in his own fathering. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're going to see that. And so he's going to be a very relatable uh, character. But I think that there's a, a prevailing message for us in his life. And, and it is not, therefore, go and be like David. It is, let's see what... God was doing inside of him and let the same God work in our hearts mm -hmm. and hopefully mitigate some of the um, catastrophes <laughs> that he that, <laughs> that he is, succumbed yeah. to mm -hmm. along the way. Well, good. I'm looking yeah. forward to it. It's going to be a good mm -hmm. few weeks. So thank yeah. you for that. Yeah. And thank you for joining us here for Postscript. We'll see you back here next week. Thanks for joining us for Postscript. Help us keep the podcast interactive by submitting your questions during the morning services. Learn more at faithbridge.org slash postscript.